You've turned my father's house into a marketplace. You've turned my father's house into a marketplace. With your prayers and the Holy Spirit's power, I speak for a few moments this morning from the topic, Selling the Gospel Short. Selling the Gospel Short. Let's pray. Amen. My friends, several major companies did the unthinkable this week. They stood up somewhat to the National Rifle Association. Their actions appear to be in response to the morally courageous and ethically indomitable high school students from Lakeland, Florida. These kids refuse to pray and mourn quietly. These young victims of violence did not get the memo that they should attribute the mass shooting at their high school solely to a lone wolf deranged teenager. But instead, these courageous teenagers added their voices to the victims of Columbine, Virginia Tech, Aurora, Newtown, Orlando, Sutherland Springs, and scores of other communities who have endured mass shootings in recent years. Oh, these fearless young people have cut through the talking points that pit gun regulations against personal freedom. These young people have undermined the ideological agenda of those who tie the Second Amendment to killing machines, such as military-grade assault weapons used in Lakeland. And these teenagers have emboldened the majority of this nation's citizens who desire sensible gun control legislation. For instance, when we look at these companies, Walmart, the most prominent gun seller, announced that it would raise the minimum age of gun purchase to 21, nor will it sell anything resembling assault-style rifles. Similarly, Dick's Sporting Goods announced that it would immediately cease selling all assault-style rifles and high-capacity magazines. For it seems that it does not take Elmer Fudd to realize that sportsmen do not need an AR-15 to hunt deer. And speaking of this AR-15, Afghanistan war veteran and Florida Republican Congressman Brian Mast stated last week in the New York Times, I have fired tens of thousands of rounds through that rifle, many in combat. We used it because it was the most lethal, the best for killing our enemies. And I know that my community, our schools, and public gathering places are not made safer by any person having access to the best killing tool the Army could put in my hands, end quote. And so, my friends, 
even for those of us who deem these decisions as possibly circumspect and modest at best, we still must acknowledge the moral stance. For with these actions, these companies and this congressman, they made a declaration. They made a declaration that there are some things in life that we must value more than profit reports. There are some decisions in life that must trump the personal desire. There are some things in life that must have a higher moral good. Here, when I think about the events of this week, I think of a, of a new spin on that famous credit card commercial. AR-15 rifle, $749. 10 rounds of ammunition, $490. Curbing accessibility to assault weapons to preserve life. Priceless. In this day and age, when we talk about priceless, that's a radical thought experiment. For we know we live in a world that seems to put a price on everything. We live in an era that philosophers have referred to as market triumphalism. Market forces and values have come to warp our worldview insofar as life has become an episode of the price is right. No domain seems to be off limit to crass commodification. Access to education and healthcare, scientific and philosophical inquiry, the courts and criminal justice system, participatory democracy and electoral politics, market forces have so shaped each of these areas that the institutions that ought to protect us from corruption seem to be now co-conspirators of injustice. Unfortunately, my friends, even religion is readily bought and sold on the auction blocks of immorality. Some of us, we confer piety to the highest bidder. Some of us, particularly if you look at the national scene with some of my conservative evangelical brothers and sisters, we concede sanctity to the well-connected. Well, that's what's going on in today's gospel lecture. We see the unjust collusion of faith and the marketplace. Jesus, the gospel of John tells us, is heading to the temple in Jerusalem. Oh, like other Jews throughout the diaspora, Jesus is preparing for the feast of the Passover. Many traveled from far and wide to get to Jerusalem. And when Jesus arrived, Jesus was disturbed by the sight. People were there selling cattle, sheep, and doves on the temple grounds. There were also money changes there, men and women who had booths open to exchange currency from those who came from faraway lands. Ambitious entrepreneurs, they were taking advantage of temple dictates. 
Well, what were the temple dictates? Well, for one, the temple required burnt offerings in the form of cattle, sheep, and doves. Local vendors knew that people would not travel such long distances with their animals. So they turned the temple into an open-air flea market, if you will. Get your fatty calf here. We've got doves for sale. Buy two sheep, get one free. Come on, one Daenerys, good price today. Secondly, you've got temple authorities that leveled a tax on all worshipers. But the temple didn't accept foreign coins. And so like an international terminal at today's airport, money changers would shut up shop and they would collect handsome fees for currency exchange. It's safe to say that I'm sure these practices were not new. It's safe to assume that Jesus had witnessed this behavior before, but something seemed to be different about this moment. Jesus reacted in a way that was distinct and defiant. The Bible says that he began immediately driving out vendors, turning over tables, pouring out the coins while declaring, you've turned my father's house into a marketplace. I've got to ask myself the question, why was it the case this time? I'm sure Jesus saw this before. I'm sure this was not a new practice for this Passover. Why this time did Jesus choose to stand up and turn out? Maybe Jesus was tired of being an indifferent bystander. He knew what he had preached. He knew what he had been teaching about. Maybe he figured that this time I've got to lead by example. Or maybe Jesus saw some others protesting. Possibly some young people. Possibly some high schoolers who hadn't quite been corrupted by power and authority as of yet. Maybe Jesus saw them somewhere off in the corner being silenced by temple authorities. And Jesus was emboldened by their courage. Jesus said, well, I always said it will be the children who will lead us. Maybe this is that day. Or maybe Jesus just reached the point that all of us get to at times, particularly when we're staring injustice in the face over and over and over again. Maybe like our dear sister Fannie Lou Hamer, Jesus just said, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Enough is enough. And on this day, After all of this injustice that we see so prevalent and ubiquitous, if we can't raise our voices in opposition, then what in the hell are we doing? That's why New Testament scholar Gail O'Day says that so many of us have emphasized Jesus' anger in the gospel lesson but we ought to think about Jesus' courage. 
for in decrying against those who have turned his father's house into a marketplace, there's a greater issue at stake than the vendors. For these vendors and these money changes, they're just symptoms of a more significant illness. Jesus is actually calling out the power structure of the temple. He's not just standing up against these vendors, he's standing up against systems of power that operate at a much higher level. Those who have elevated their own thirst for power, those who have elevated their own lust for control, and those who have lifted their greed up over their God. So that's the reason why that at this busiest, at this most important, and at this most profitable of feasts of the year, Jesus shuts down their self-serving operation. And it's Jesus' courage that awakes people from their indifference and their apathy. It's Jesus' conviction that calls out the powerful for their promotion of injustice. And it's Jesus' actions that shine a light on the real sin of the vendors and the temple authorities. Yes, there's greed involved. Yes, there's corruption involved. Yes, there's avarice involved here. But the real sin, Jesus says, is actually their idolatry. It's their idolatry. Sister Maisha, it's their ability to worship another god. Idolatry the object of our heart's desire, idolatry in the words of Martin Luther, that which our hearts cling to and confide in, idolatry, that which we put our ultimate faith and our ultimate trust. That's why I believe the lectionary links this narrative of Jesus in the temple with the scripture passage from the book of Exodus that you read for us, Brother Ben. Because before Moses instructs the people to keep the Sabbath day, before he instructs them to honor their parents, to never murder, to never steal, not to bear false witness or covet that which belongs to another, Moses provides a clear and concise prohibition. God said, you shall have no other God. For you will not make of yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that's in heaven above, in earth beneath, or in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down and worship anything else. For it seems that God realizes that if you and I get the first prohibition right, it's a lot easier to adhere to the other prohibitions. For whenever you and I allow anything to become the object of our faith. Whenever we allow our hearts to cling to and confide in something of our own creation, then we will surely kill, steal, and destroy in its name. Maybe this is why Jill Lepore has referred to our country as one nation under a gun. Maybe this is why we see evidence that 
a market-driven morality will ultimately murder democracy. And maybe this is why when we put a price on everything, we cannot discern the true value of anything. Our better angels are monetized. Our principles are commercialized. And our core values are bastardized. Our faith in God. The good news, that which we call the gospel as Christians, it's devalued and it's depreciated. For there are just some things in life, my brothers and sisters, where market forces do not belong. And as those teenagers from Lakeland, as they have helped us to see, there are some places in life and some things in life that are too special to devalue with a price or with lobbying power. Today's gospel story always reminds me of a common yet uncomfortable parable about market-driven morality. It's the tale of when a Mexican fisherman meets a business executive a business executive with an MBA from a certain prestigious business school of which name I will leave unmentioned. The executive was impressed when he was vacationing down at this small Mexican coastal village. He was impressed by one Mexican fisherman that had a boatload of yellowfish tuna. The executive asked him, he said, how long did it take you to catch those fish? And he said, oh, not long, just an hour or two a day. And he says, why don't you stay out longer? And the fisherman replied, oh, well, because I get to sleep late. I get to fish a little. I play with my children. I take siestas with my wife. I stroll into the village each evening where I sip wine, and then I play guitar with my amigos. I have a full and a busy life. The executive then said, I can help you. You can spend more time fishing and with the proceeds, we can buy a bigger boat. With the proceeds from the bigger boat, we could buy several boats. Eventually, you'll have to have a fleet of fishing boats. Instead of selling your catch to a middleman, you and I could sell directly to a processor. We'll open up our own cannery. You can control your own product, processing, and distribution. You'll have to leave this small coastal village and move to Mexico City and then possibly Los Angeles and then to New York City where you can run your expanding enterprise. The fisherman said, how long will this take? The executive said, oh, only about 10 or 15 years. The fisherman said, then what will I do after that? And the executive said, that's the best part of it all. You can come back here to this village. You can sleep late, fish a little, play with your children, take siestas with your wife, sip wine and play guitars with your friend every night. Is that all there is to life? Expansion and market forces? Or are there some things, my brothers and sisters, that we can't put a price on? Salvation, 
sacrifice. Joy, service. Being able to live in a world of justice and peace. Priceless.